Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, my friends? We got a killer show for you today. Our guest is Dwight Anderson, founder of Osprey Management, a firm that actively invests in commodity markets and basic industries worldwide. Dwight previously worked at famed shops like Tudor and Tiger Management in charge of basic industries and commodities. In today's episode, we're talking with one of the best investors to hear about the chaotic year commodities have had so far. Dwight shares his macro view of the world and then the micro picture for different commodities across energy, metals, and agriculture. He touches on a few stocks he likes today, and then we get into his choice to get into the ag tech venture space and where he sees opportunities there. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal by deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10east.co. Please enjoy this episode with Osprey Management's Dwight Anderson. Dwight, welcome to the show. Appreciate being here, Meb. Thank you very much. Where do we find you today? Now you find me in uh, sweltering Manhattan. I'm finally going to be there in the fall. I miss it. I used to get to New York like once a quarter, and it's been uh, many years at this point, two, three, pre-pandemic. I'm, uh, I'm excited to get back. back. What's the vibe like? Things, uh, things happening? Well, the vibe's not fully back. It's, there's definitely still some sort of nervousness and security here based on a friend of mine's big in sandwich shops and sort of uh, chopped chains. And you're still at 50% of pre-COVID levels for a sort of business meals and lunches in terms of that. And so um, we want you back. We need the tourist tax dollars to help you know, sort of balance it. So uh, is, is please come. But uh, again, still a little bit emptier uh, than before. All right. Look forward to getting back. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. First, uh, I thought uh, we would start with expectations. Uh, I, I was I love tweeting out surveys and asking surveys on on Twitter to get a feel for uh, people's expectations. But one that was kind of triggering me over the last couple of years because it kept getting higher and higher was investor expectations on this was just for broad based equities and it kept going for you know years it was at 10 and then it went to 12 14 and, and most of the surveys ended last year around 17 percent but doing my research i found there's at least one investor who had even higher expectations and this may have been when you originally started your uh firm uh, a while back and that was your mom right like there's the one point where your mom was was wasn't even impressed with 30 percent returns is that a is that an accurate story 
I think that's no longer an accurate story. Both, uh, I think, um, uh, in that uh, she was a, a firm, aggressive retail trader in the dot-com days. And so uh, my mom and dad are both in their 80s and thankfully still alive. And I think they focus much more on sort of a balanced uh, portfolio return now. Yeah, I like it. Well, that was a fun time. I like to say a lot on this podcast. That was my favorite bubble. Uh, the 90s was graduating school, but had everything from professors, uh, pausing class to trade stocks, to everything you probably and, and everyone else saw last year. But maybe we'll start. I, I wanted to hear a little bit about kind of your, your origins, because we can go through um, a little bit of, uh, of the progression of commodity markets and resources and everything you're doing now. But, you know, you were a care, you were a Tar Heel from business school and not a lot of people back then were really career path of kind of where you focused. Would that be an accurate statement? I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of how someone ends up in the, the world that, uh, that, that you did. Um, give us a little insight. Well, it's an ill-spent youth is probably the main cause. You're 100% correct. Um, I was, you could just, is, is I've had the benefit of having had very simple, simple monikers my whole life. First off, not many people know Dwight's. So generally, you know, and then the other aspect is I was known as the manufacturing guy. And the fact that you could call someone the manufacturing guy and they know who you're talking about tells you that there weren't too many in my peer group or related well, right. I feel like that almost is like you like sit down a banking class or MBA group and like it's like you weren't there that day. They sign, OK, first pick gets tech, second pick gets whatever. And like all the way down the industry is they're like, all right, manufacturing. All right. Dwight's not here today. We're picking him. <laughs> well, to be honest, it's, it's actually a little bit not too far off of that. I'd gone to school as a liberal arts major. I was a military history major. And I'd always assumed that it was a, a wasted major to be able to get a job. And so therefore I'd have to go on to graduate school. And so I was focused upon athletics and social life and all the other immature focuses of a 18 to 21 year old when I was in college and I just assumed I was going to go to law school. So took the LSAT, applied, got into law school. And then I woke up one morning in my dorm room uh, bed, February of my senior year and panicked because I realized I didn't want to go become a lawyer. And so I applied for Every single company that was still coming to campus, you know, relative to all those I missed, including one uh, in sales and trading up in New York. And actually, the person who I was competing for that with is actually my co-founder of Osprey, Jason Mraz. But and along the way, I also got a job offer from Microsoft. And my parents showed up at my dorm room. They both worked for IBM. And uh, they begged me not to take that job because they're going to be launching OS2. And this is eight, 1989. And the Microsoft be bankrupt in a year. And so please... Don't throw away everything that they had sacrificed and I had sacrificed for. And so when I sat in my paper mill in the 90s, uh, looking at how Microsoft had done and the opportunity, it did cause some second guessing. I mean, look, you would, it's not like you'd probably own the Clippers by now. You would have ascended the ranks and just have money, money to spare. <laughs> but then it would be the Clippers. So, I mean, I, I'm better off. Totally fair. Totally fair. Okay. But I got a range of, of job offers and I had done uh, custom programming and stuff in the summers to help pay for college some of them being software programming jobs. And I called one company to turn them down. And it's a company that did manufacturing software and consulting. And they made the offer to switch my job from software over to consulting on the spot because their manufacturing consulting business was going at such gangbuster levels, they were gonna be short people. So I joined uh, 19 industrial engineers and myself in a training program in Chicago because 
I sort of liked the idea of trying to do something tangible and real. Like if I could keep one job in America, raise the standard of living 0.001%, just something that actually had real benefit to the economy, industry, people, and doing something tangible. It was something that really resonated with me. And that's how I ended up there. So biz school, and then you decide to do um, the fun world. I mean, what was, what was the first stop? Was it Tiger or was it Tudor or was it something before that? So the answer is um, when I was working, you know, running a paper and printing mill in upstate New York, I had time to actually, which is not normal, sort of self-reflect. And I looked at what I thought I might be good at and um, would like to do. And the idea of proprietary investing and trading. Um, but it's really awful hard to go from a printing mill in upstate New York to that. And so the reason I went back to business school was to make myself acceptable for the investment banking, trading, investment world. So after incredibly brief stints in Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, their commodities group with the idea that I'd need to go five to 10 years of prop trading, build up a track record or fail, in which case I'd go back to consulting, is fortunately enough, um, I had gone to, to business school in the Tiger Fellowship. Julian wanted to do more in commodities and his Rolodex was scarily empty, except for mine, for someone who knew commodities and basic industries. And so they uh, reached out to me to join that group at Tiger. And so it really was via sort of J. Aaron and J.P. Morgan and their commodity groups, it, but in a way briefer stint that allowed me to transition to Tiger. Taking us back, like what was the investment universe mindset towards commodities at that point? Was it was it seen as something that was really like a, a business operational focus or something you just hedged as like a risk management? Or was it something that, you know, was gaining traction at that point for investment side? Like, I, I'm trying to remember if it felt like it didn't really happen until mid 2000s? Or what, what was the? Yeah. So Goldman Sachs had literally just created their commodity index and had about one investors from Swedish institution. So nothing in terms of investor acceptance. It was still the Wild West. You know, it was the Hillary Clinton cattle trading. You know, it was what drove Mattel Gesellschaft bankrupt. And there used to be much more aggressive prop trading by companies and or trading and massive leverage and speculation. And so it was literally viewed as, you know, some insanely risky, volatile segment off to one side. I did an old post on the blog many years ago about how much Hillary Clinton would be worth if she continued compounding her money um, the same way she did with the futures trading. She'd be a vigintillionaire. I had to look that up. I don't even know what which one that comes after, quadrillions or what, but it was a, it was a high compound rate, listeners. Yeah, Meb, not all of us are lucky enough to get the dead high and the dead low as a retail broker in the old pits. Listeners, you can go Google that. We'll put it in the show notes. All right. So you do some stops with some, some pretty top name shops, and then you start your firm. Man, uh, not to date you and I both, but we, uh, we've we now been around for a while. We've seen a few cycles. We've seen uh, the GFC. We've seen pandemic, whatever we're in now. Tell us what Osprey looks like today, investment philosophy and kind of what, what are y'all's main uh, focus, and then we'll we'll dance around the macro picture and all that stuff. Yeah, I actually even saw the Asian crisis. And uh, and so, uh, yeah, a, a few different cycles. So um, Osprey is, is a combination of public and private investment, as well as venture capital. Main focus in terms of uh, external capital is a longshore commodity fund, as we've been involved in since the start of the firm 23 years ago now. Uh, and so that's sort of, you know, when you started five in the morning till 
you know, most of the markets effectively close around two thirty in the afternoon. That's primary focus of, of your minute to minute time. But along the way, as we still made uh, a lot of material investments with uh, our own partners, capital related in primarily these days, metals and mining and related logistics, as well as agricultural and ag tech. We have some legacy um, energy or energy storage investments, but sort of the scale of capital time and concern over the multiple the market would give them gave us pause. And so it's been fun. I mean, actually working to build businesses with great management teams or, or working to find them to, for businesses that need improvement. And so uh, that's really what Osprey is these days. We touch and dance around sort of natural resources, farming, um, ecosystem over the years. We actually did a podcast today uh, that just published with uh, some of the old Gold Corp heiress uh, guys on the, on the mining side, uh, Frank Justra, which was a fun one. Frank would definitely be fun. Speaking of the Clintons. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's, he has an olive oil company, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff they're, they're involved in. But there's no greater sector industry in my mind that, I'm not sure if harder is the right world word, but for people who don't know what they're doing to get in as much trouble as this. I, I would say, you know, trading Forex at 50 to 1 or 101 could be, could be similar, but not knowing your ways around sort of this world. Um, why don't we start with the macro and then we can kind of split off into, into some, some sub pieces, but this has been a crazy year. I feel like a lot of people have kind of forgotten about commodities. And then last year happens, last two years happen. Walk us through kind of what's the, what's the setup? What, what's the, what's the macro last few years look like for commodities and kind of what's, what's your, what's your thoughts today? Sure, man. A couple of things. I'll just take back to your point in terms of why it's hard. It's something that people, you know, institutions, I don't think properly analyzed over why they've struggled to make money structurally in the sector. Um, it's just the simple math fact, as you know, in a futures market where even ignoring commission expenses, no one net makes money because you got to have a dollar loss for every dollar gained. So as opposed to equities where you can put in someone's margin net long, you get the positive drift to the equity market. Okay. There is none in just outright in terms of futures, let alone the aspect of that. Then you combine all the expenses, commission, prime brokerage, whatever else. You start off where you're 60, 40 against odds of making money in the space. Yeah? And then you throw in tail events and volatility and, and, and you allow people to put leverage on top of all of that at multiples of the equity market. It's, that's the aspect that the combination of, of net people, NPV should lose money and leverage. It's a space that uh, there's a reason I have a lot of gray hair and, and less of it, actually. I have less gray, I have less hair and mainly it's gray. In terms of the macro backdrop, and as you speak about cycles, we have been in one of the most amazing setups that you possibly could have for the last two and a quarter years. And that you put yourself in April of uh, 2020, and you couldn't have had a more bullish outlook and setup for uh, commodities. You had a nine-year bear market. Coming into 2020, there were a number of markets that were moving into a deficit before the COVID shock. Now you collapse prices, right? and all of a sudden, you had companies who were already cutting CapEx and cutting forward supply and moving a deficit. Those got slashed even further. You had a complete price collapse, and you had a bunch of production shut-ins. So less supply, less production, less future supply and capacity. You have 
every central bank in the world liquefying as fast as possible, and you have a fiscal stimulus that's rolling out immediately, effectively in China, or else we're longer over the rest of the world. And it was utterly unique in terms of price collapse and depressions, in that normally you end up with a massive surplus of inventory and surplus capacity. Because it was the end of a nine-year bear market, as opposed to what happened coming out of 08 or 09, we had all this capacity that was created by the prior year surplus, you had nothing. And you had people overspending on materials because they're sitting home redoing like you did, renovating their homes, getting the new fridge for extra storage inventory. So people were purchasing goods because they could no longer purchase experiences. And because of those uh, production closures, mines in South Africa, South America, you came out of a downturn with record low supply growth, record low inventory, and a lot of times less inventory than you had going into the downturn. Let's hold energy to one side because that was transportation mobility driven. And you had the uh, brief market share war between Saudi Arabia and Russia to start. So other than energy and all the other markets, you had as phenomenal bull market set up that you then experienced for the next 15 months. Okay? You roll forward to the end of July, you've had grain prices explode, coffee prices explode, metal prices have had phenomenal movement, whether it's gold, silver, copper, you go through everything. And effectively, as of about a year ago, you moved into a market that was either going to be some sort of supply shock or weather driven, like you had sort of in South America and Brazil, or like, or it was going to be energy driven, either push or pull. Cost push, you know, because of uh, it's a large raw material for things like fertilizer or like, or pull because it's a component of like ethanol as a demand for corn or sugar or bean oil. And so you move from a overall massive commodity bull market to an energy driven bull market, again, push or pull. And that's really what we've been in, exacerbated by certain geopolitical events, all the way until you get to, let's say, June of this year. And this is finally now that point where, you know, is, is you have certain cracks and it got to such a level and an extreme that you have a very different macro backdrop as opposed to April of 2020. Now central banks are raising interest rates. They're pulling back monetary liquidity. You've lost the cumulative effects of all that fiscal stimulus. Um, you have energy taking up a massive share of people's wallet. And so you're losing the marginal purchase power, but the purchase power of people who buy in volume. Okay. So in other words is you had a huge surge of wealth that went to lower income, that went to goods, and commodities are driven by volume purchases and number of people. So the wealthy might buy the same, whether it's good times or bad, but that change in the purchasing patterns of the largest part of the population for the world, and they're the ones most affected by the energy squeeze. So you're in a market right now where uh, there are individual supply stories, okay, and you are, might be so short you have to ration demand. Uh, in some of these commodities, but it isn't that uniform macro and micro driven story that we have wonderfully had. Yeah, it's starting to, I don't know if settle is the right word because um, it's commodities. I don't know if it's ever that quiet, but um, so as, as you kind of look to the horizon now, what what, uh, what are sort of your expectations going forward? I mean, I know a lot of people are concerned, particularly in the ag space about you know, that the geopolitical impact that has going forward with prices. But as you kind of look at the various uh, commodity markets, is it something that you think it just kind of settles down over the next year or two? Or is, uh, you know, um, this is asking you to put on the forecasting hat, which is, of course, impossible. But any uh, any guesses, any thoughts? So you had 
a relatively uniform sell-off across almost all of the commodity markets here over the last two months, um, where you've had energy come off and agricultures uh, across the board and uh, industrial metals and precious metals. And we think that that is actually something that is, is too uniform and you're gonna get actually some interesting segmentation, some good long short going forward. Basically the way in which certain commodities are priced, whether it's corn, soybean oil, cocoa, you have to have a recession, almost a depression to justify these prices. The balance sheets are so tight and or in deficit that if demand doesn't collapse, those prices have to materially move up, whether it's 20 or 50%. On the other side, given the slowdown, you've seen sort of what's happened in iron ore or a number of the base metals or even something like nickel. Those are markets that are moving towards balance or surplus. And so those are correctly priced and a number of them are going to continue to fall. The most dynamic market for us really probably is energy in that we do believe that unless we enter a recession dramatically, you know, quickly, like within 2022, we're short of capacity. Like if you pull out the uh, volumes that are being released from the SPR, we're still drawing inventories and crude materially. Uh, for normal economic movement for China and the Atlantic Basin, we're short refined product, especially in a world where there's going to be increasing constraints on Russian exports. We depend for three and a half million barrels of Russian product exports per year, per day. Uh, and so when I take a look at the incremental bans on shipment and insurance and use of Russian crude oil and products post-October going into the end of fourth quarter, assuming some normal return of movement for China, is unless we've hit a massive recession by now, energy prices driven by crude and refined products have to be materially higher. So the only question is how quick, how hard the recession that is uniformly expected comes. If it doesn't come now, both the majority of the agricultural commodities and energy will first be materially higher. And I know this is a multi-factor, very complicated world, but as you look at sort of like the main drivers, so, you know, global economy, um, like you mentioned, recession, uh, China, enduring pandemic, Russia, Ukraine, what is like the, the biggest driver you think at this point of commodities, or is that solely commodity specific? Like, is that too just basic of a question? Majority of the time and for majority of influence, it's too large a, a question because we don't really view commodities as an asset class, barring extreme economic shocks or massive currency devaluations. Because if you look at something like cocoa that goes into chocolate or other related food products, you're looking at almost 70% of the production comes from two countries in West Africa, Ivory Coast and Ghana, sort of unique weather patterns and issues and supply dynamic. The demand is very economic and income inelastic. You know, it's your cheap luxury good in recession. You know, barring an Asian crisis and a currency collapse, you don't tend to see major moves in demand. And so I then take a look at something like copper, which is the most industrial production sensitive commodity. Relatively widespread production, but you know, whether it's Chile, Peru, US, China, you know, it's, you know, th there are a number of countries, but then you are tied to the IP cycle. And so you can get copper in a, bull mar in, a, in a bull market and cocoa in a bear market or vice versa, there is no inherent correction. Now, don't get me wrong. When you have the size and scale of a move that the dollar has had overall against all commodities and in the dollar index, that is a weight upon all commodity prices. So commodities would be higher than they are now across the board if you hadn't had the scale of the dollar move. But that sort of retards the price 
rather than you know being uh, the single biggest driver for each one it's some aspect of uh, of for a time period economic demand you know and, and your sensitivity to it so copper most and then something like diesel after that and other metals are the drivers and they're the ones that we worry and focus on so you know cocoa is something that you focus on the supply because demand doesn't change that much whereas copper the supply in aggregate doesn't change that much it's the demand in the stocking decycling cycle so each commodity we focus a little bit differently on the drivers so as you kind of think about putting together, um, and this is just kind of still on the commodity side, would you kind of characterize y'all's as as pure fundamental, like discretionary sort of commodity manager? And, and then of that, how do you think about how much of that could be long only, totally short only, long short hedged exposure? The, the answer also comes in depending upon the era, you know, in that uh, post uh, 2008, we've had a sort of lower risk, lower vol approach. Um, what we've learned is where we tend to be able to outperform and add advantage and generate return over time is the microeconomics, understanding and knowing it best. Where we tend to get impacted is the four, five, six standard deviation events that might occur in an area you know, you know, once a decade. So whether it's the GFC, whether it's COVID, would have been the Asian crisis. And so as such, the scale of risk, especially on the growth side that I took when I was younger and, and, and sort of more rampant and always knew I was correct, okay, was larger than, than today. And so um, we start with a macro backdrop. So when we take a look and say, are central banks, most importantly, the US in a loosening or a tightening mode, you know, whether it comes to interest rates, money supply, and also fiscal for governments, and we US and China are our two fixations. We're dollar denominated, so US matters most, but from a demand perspective, for a lot of our commodities, China can matter most. And so the amount that will be sort of net long will be more in an environment like April of 2020 when it's all green versus today. Today, we our max net long would be below average because you're in such a slowing and tightening macro environment. So you start with that backdrop, and then it really comes into sort of the risk return of the individual commodities. And so I can be you know, 50% net short, I can be 50% long, or I don't, we are not even capped to that. There's just sort of a, a general plus minus gains. And we've been more long than that. Our, the max net short will be is less than our max net long. And we drive that into VAR and worst week and worst examples and build up from there. Because a lot of it also comes from the volatility of the commodity and where we are in the curve. Because if I'm involved in natural gas two years forward versus spot, very different volatility. And if you're involved, not to belabor the market, cocoa, okay, versus natural gas, massively different volatility. And so um, we size our positions based on curve commodity and, and also where you really are in the cost curve and in inventory. So if you're in a uh, area where you're below the marginal cost for a commodity and there's a huge amount of inventory, you will have below average exhibited volatility and, and a lot less of a skew in terms of that. I was just thinking as you were talking, um, we come from a, on my dad's side, a farming background in, in Kansas, Nebraska, and always thinking about all the various inputs and what can go wrong. And I remember a few years ago, there's a picture picture on the blog, listeners, of one of the risks I'd never considered was uh, I got a phone call. <laughs> I actually saw it, I think, on Instagram or Facebook first, uh, but then eventually got a phone call where we had a combine catch fire and burn down the entire beautiful field of wheat that was already, you know, <laughs> already done, 
uh, a beautiful crop. And I like that's not not even something that I even considered on the bingo card of possibilities. And I always when thinking about um, markets in general. It's always uh, you have to be very imaginative to think of all the possible outcomes. But we saw fires in Russia in their wheat fields in 2011 in terms of that. And they actually are trying because it's dry in the Ukraine right now. Shelling, they've gone and done patterns across wheat fields trying to start fires in the Ukrainian aspect of their wheat fields. We actually uh, hasn't published yet, but we just did a, um, a podcast with an author that has a book out on uh, uh, wheat and it's called Oceans of Grain. Listeners, you probably will have heard it by the time this uh, this one drops, but it's a really fun book on the history of how kind of wheat is a University of Georgia professor and uh, kind of traces the arc of wheat's impact on history is actually a really fun episode. While we're here, we may as well talk a little bit about uh, Europe, their energy policies, uh, Russia and Ukraine, uh, the ag situation. Um, you can kind of pick and choose, but as far as geopolitical events going on, how do you think these resolve play out? And, and like, what what is the just kind of looking out the rest of the year, next six months, 2022, or even into the beginning of 23, what's, what's kind of your expectations here? Well, so we do a bunch of different scenario analyses. And so, you know, our modal scenario, unfortunately, is that the scale of energy prices and pressure that we've seen in Europe you know, creates a recession that they're in, we think, currently, and that it exacerbates from here. Um, it seems to be the the logical path uh, for uh, Russia relative to the gas supplies that as you start to enter their crucial time period uh, to take advantage of that to get their maximum negotiating leverage. And so our modal plan and assessment and outlook is that Europe is in an effective recession uh, here for the balance of this year caused by a number of the different economic ramifications, a large of them driven by the geopolitical events. So uh, we continue to, to expect to see uh, things like their aluminum industry quite possibly further curtailing production. We expect to see, uh, like uh, Yara just announced, their further curtailing nitrogen fertilizer production. Um, they're actually going through a horrible drought in terms of heat-driven weather issues, and so we're cutting our crop estimates. So their domestic food supply and production is going to take a hit, uh, and, and that's an exogenously driven uh, issue. Uh, and so the combination of a country like Germany, one of their largest export markets was Ukraine, Russia combined. They've lost that. They have the energy pressure. Uh, and so that energy cost push where sort of the unfortunate poster child is energy, is Europe and what they're going to you know, be dealing with for that and how it most likely will get worse over the next six months is our modal situation for there. And so a lot of the uh, base industrial stuff that's happened there in metal side, fabrication, smelting, refining, uh, we think will have to be moved to other countries and areas. And the U.S. will benefit from that in part. How are institutions thinking about this? You know, you, you, you mentioned starting out all the way from the Goldman Commodity Index to I feel like institutions loving commodities then hating them and, uh, you know, oil going negative and all sorts of weird stuff. How are they kind of thinking about, and, and how should investors thinking about incorporating uh, commodities and sort of resources into a portfolio? So the answer to your question is, especially for commodity futures, 
but generally for real assets. The problem is, is most institutions get involved after you've had a period of great returns in, in just outright flat price and where returns are unsustainably high and then they get involved. So a number of them were, were burned in sort of that 08 through 14 time period where you had commodities briefly peak again in May of 11 and then come off. And so basically the time period from 11 through 20 was the utter elimination of almost all discretionary commodity managers. So it's uh, the volumes in the commodity markets these days are driven by algorithms and systems and everything else. The scale of capital discretionary is fractional. And that actually, I think, creates a unique opportunity set for a period of time. Institutions came to believe there's no structural alpha in commodities. Okay. And so all these phenomenal investors like Andy Hall, whatever else left. Okay. And, uh, you know, is, is one of the peers I respect a lot for his knowledge in crude oil. If you look at Pierre, you know, he had to he closed his fund the first time and has been able to come back, you know, well, you know, this time, but across the board, especially managers left the space and institutions had no interest. They had too many iterations where they'd lost money being involved in it. In the past 18 months, you've had renewed interest and some renewed allocations. Uh, there's still enough institutional memory to be hesitant to really move a large amount of scale capital. A lot of people have therefore missed you know, the, the best time period that there ever was, which is really the last two and a quarter years. And I can even see it with my incoming calls. I had all sorts of peers and former colleagues and friends like from Tiger who didn't call me for five, six, seven years. And all of a sudden in the past 12 months, the phones are, oh, Dwight, have you been? I miss you. Just want to catch up. Hey, what are your thoughts on crude? What are your thoughts on fertilizer? Okay. And so that aspect where if you just correlate sort of inbound calls from people wanting to talk to you again about that, and it, it's, I would sort of correlate investor interest. So people are still, I'd say, effectively underweight the sector, especially from a discretionary basis. Um, but there is renewed interest and there has been some renewed flows. In terms of how I think they should do it, I don't love uh, commodity indices, okay? It's a very inefficient way to do it, you know, especially relative to how you normally have negative carries. There's about two years, a decade, where you should opportunistically have that exposure, okay? At the end of a bear market and with the right macro backdrop. Other than that, people need to be involved with active and discretionary managers or, you know, and so I think it's only by being involved with the right assets, such as the right farmland, as opposed to commodity futures to actually pick up the cash rent, like, or individual assets that you could structurally be invested five, 10, 15 years. From a commodity future, how people think about it long only, it's too brief a window. Yeah. That seems like a perfect segue because you, um, you're you know, well known for kind of investing in the entire ecosystem and so companies as well. Um, I know there's a lot of VC and private as well. What, what, what's the, if you kind of chopped it up as far as the pie, as far as public versus private, is majority focused private early stage? Is it majority public? What, what, what's the kind of split for you guys? Majority capital for our partners these days is, is private um, with a large amount of it in sort of agricultural uh, venture capital. But material in metals and mining, it, fabrication, and uh, there's a great management team at a company called Concord, uh, which is involved in sort of logistics movement, but also has backed into owning the only alumina refinery in North America, where Mark Hansen and his team have just done an exceptional job. And it's become the second largest mover and trader of aluminum in the world. And so, you know, a breadth of different. And, and so 
I would start with rather than public versus private, you know, is is we look at a combination of great management teams and also sort of an underlying industry and the assets. And is there a fit between the two? We talk a lot about this. We say, you know, for the public global market portfolio of all assets, one of the biggest missing kind of pieces being farmland. You know, I mean, we talked to Bill Gates for this, but the the, the a lot of it is hard to act. It's either through private or it's through other means, but it's largely or individually held, but but hard to access through. I had somebody email me today. It was like, Meb, why isn't there any good farmland ETFs? And I said, well, that's a you know long discussion, but it's a. Uh, it's it's just not necessarily a great fit. Well, one of the things on that, Meb, just is one of the companies that we were co-founding capital for is one of the largest farming companies in South America, but went public on the New York Stock Exchange 11 years ago now, 11 and a half, called Adeco Agro. That's the cheapest farmland you can buy in the world, and its publics are relatively liquid. I mean, it's trading three and a half times even EBITDA, generating you know, effectively 30% of free cash flow yields. Like if people really want to be involved in farming in some of the lowest cost and best run, like that's the easy way someone could pick up a phone and buy it tomorrow. Do you think the low multiple is because it just happens to be in Latin American sort of indices and they've been out of favor or like what, what, why, why is uh, that opportunity kind of uh, so cheap? So the starting point is, I don't know why it's so cheap. Okay, um, it was a seven dollar and and seven fifty stock in December. They've had a phenomenal six months of pay down debt, generated a huge amount of earnings, and it went to thirteen dollars, and we're back to seven seven fifty here in the past week. So yes, it's it's a fact that it's it's not that you know you're talking a little over a billion dollar market cap. You know, company actually at today's price a billion dollar market cap company. It is something that is. Uh, also, there's a, a few material holders, so it's not that liquid. Okay, so you're right. You are prey to some of uh, sort of the greater volatility that comes from a less liquid stock, you know, that's uh, tied to both agricultural indices, but then South American indices. And so it's had an exaggerated effect, but that's the opportunity. And you said this is a Deco Agro? Yeah, it's symbol on New York Stock Exchange is Agro, A-G-R-O. Right, it's an amazing ticker. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of good tickers. That's that's as good as it gets, Agro. Yeah, I mean, like this is an area that I think is ripe for opportunity on an individual name basis. It's hard uh, on, a, on a fun level because uh, I don't know if the market cap size on trying to put together a good portfolio, you end up just with like John Deere and some giant companies that are sort of, you know, tangential to what what's you really want exposure to, but- I could be convinced. Who knows? Well, I think is you can back into. So like there's a company out there, again, South American focus is probably what's created the opportunity called Bioceras. It's symbol as Biox, B-I-O-X. I think that this is, is the next very large up and coming agricultural input company. Like, you know, what Monsanto was 30 plus years ago. They, uh, you mentioned Wheaton in the fires earlier. We're having huge problems with drought around the world. They just got drought-resistant wheat and soybean-resistant wheat seeds approved from Brazil to United States to China to Australia. And so they have unique products. They have a phenomenal footprint within South America. Um, they've got great partnerships with Corteva and Syngenta. The, you look at their pace of growth, you know, is, is, is there are companies out there that are generating 50, 60% top-line growth numbers, okay, that are incredibly affordably different that are out there because they're less than a billion market cap, or to, to be honest, these days, less than 5 billion, where you can actually build a portfolio in agriculture that is, I think, you know, because of the 
less liquidity, you know, just sort of forgotten, but can create massive inefficiencies. Good. Well, listeners, by the end of this podcast, we're going to convince Dwight to launch an ETF, uh, and uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll get it we'll get it out there. Think of a good ticker for uh, uh, OSPR. Okay, so you know, so farmland you can get some exposure to. Um, obviously, the metals and mining is is kind of well uh, well represented in a lot of the uh, public markets. But let's spend a little time on just kind of ag tech in general. You know, or or, or your focus on VC. I, I I don't know that it was ag tech specific. So when, when you're looking at the, the private side, is there a general focus? Um, and if so, what are you guys looking for? So the answer is, is we'll do private equity investments in metals and mining and related logistics and ag or ag tech. But where we've put together like a material amount of our personal capital, but also a whole separate investment team is on agricultural technology, Osprey Ag Science. And it's really trying to take advantage of sort of what we've done our whole lives and what we you know best, which is farming, okay? Most venture capital are sort of incredibly wide, you know, sort of, you know, mile wide and inch thick, and they get, you know, they're looking for a few different call options and they'll therefore cast a wide net, like farm to table. We mentioned the Deco Agro. We started uh, another farming company in the United States called Taze River, which has become one of the, it's private, but one of the biggest farming companies in the United States. And, uh, we, all of us, number of us own farmland personally or privately. And so uh, that aspect of having built some of the biggest farming companies, where we're also one of the biggest users of these inputs and seeing the need, you know, for a whole bunch of institutional environmental reasons to improve what is being done, both for the safety of the farmers and the consumers in the world and how that needs to be just as economic. Because as you said, farming is darn hard. Okay. It is an incredibly difficult, low margin business. And so we need to give them something that is just as easy to use, just as economic, but is better for the world. And so Osprey Ag Science is a set of ag tech investments we've made purely tied to farm production. Okay, And so it's you know doing more with less is really the theme. And so we focus on investing either in sustainable inputs, how do you cut the use of synthetic chemicals, fertilizers and like, or other cleaner forms of production like controlled environment, indoor agriculture. And so the former uh, CFO of Monsanto, who became the CEO of CHS, Carl Gasali, you know, sort of leads that group along with Jason Mraz, my coworker, uh, Yogesh Maga, who's an equity analyst who joined with us about 17 years ago, is there. There's a uh, brother and sister, John and Julie Overbeck, who created the biggest seed company in the world, who worked with there, Tom Wiltrout, who ran Dow Agro's seed division and strategy group. And that whole group and related analysts, Levesque, Sycamore's, do nothing but focus on our investments purely in the ag tech, but again, the farm input side. So as we kind of look, you know, and it's exciting to see, but what are kind of the main opportunities? I mean, there's a lot. I mean, and I imagine someone uninitiated who's thinking about, okay, farmland, is it in seed improvement? Is it in robotics on sort of the automation and, and kind of removing a lot of the human input? Is it on analytics? Like, is there seems to be so much going on here. Um, what are the, the kind of areas you guys are most excited about? It seems like there's um, a whole host of possible ideas and areas. Yeah. And then the aspect again is you need to focus. You need to know what you say no to and where can you compete? Because some of the things you talked about, we're going to have phenomenal innovations on, but the individual small startup companies generally don't have the ability to compete there. So seed, seed genetics, everything that's owned by a couple of different companies. Like you, 
you you really can't invest in the area and believe you have the probability of succeeding. You might, but it's not a good bet. And sort of the real massive scale of hardware, I don't want to compete with Deer. Okay, with their ability to bundle the scale of research that they can do, um, and so you have to get into the the whole paradigm. Whether it was the craft beer industry, you know, they go for individual niche brands, but then get use the distribution of the. If you look at biotech and how pharma and they interact, like those are the paradigms you can sort of use. And so for us, the way we take a look at it is that aspect of the input side and the uh, the focus on either using cleaner better or something that allows you to use less in terms of inputs is near the people haven't, it's not in the interest of the fertilizer companies historically or the in ag chem companies. And how do you actually do something that also as their product portfolios age, as they move to where they lose patent protection, you know, is how do you give them products they can wrap together that actually are in their economic interest or don't compete directly or hitting products at a lifetime that are better for the farm and the farmer. And so really those aspects of unique products to cut the intensity of use. And then the other aspect is a complete reimagination of the farm for where it's economic. Okay. In that over 90% of all our lettuce is grown, you know, in, in one Valley and in two States in America, and then just shipped from there. Okay. And so I, what we have done is we've taken a look at how do you do indoor farming in a way that actually is economic and compete for a return on capital as opposed to just purely operating margin and for water and carbon and everything. And so where we believe indoor agriculture is going to go is yes, there's going to be a place for greenhouses as you've discovered from the Netherlands and you'll have an aspect. Majority of money that's going into indoor agriculture has gone for the arrows, the bowries, the, you know, you take a look at all of those, the plenties. They're doing these massive warehouse plus size buildings, very fixed in terms of what they can produce, not that flexible, massive capital costs, but also they need huge amounts of volume. And they're dealing therefore with the most competitive customer base, like Walmart, Kroger, Food Lion, you know, those people are horrible to deal with in commodity products. Okay. And so what we found is there's a group of very small scale controlled environment. So whether it's freight farms, intelligent growth systems, people who are the last mile, Okay, where you can actually put it into a neighborhood in Long Island or in South Dakota or Jackson Hole, okay, or the center of Indianapolis. And because transportation logistics costs are so expensive because the flexibility operation, it costs you $140,000 to buy a container farm, okay, is you can actually, because it's darn expensive to get through Manhattan, to get on Long Island through the traffic and all the labor in the union and stuff that falls off a truck, okay, to actually get it to the end mile. So that end margin, like, if you're up in the upper Midwest, basil and, and like could be $55 a pound for 10 months of the year, putting something where you can grow at 12 months of the year, or even just 10 when it's, uh, you know, at, at the highest price gives you a phenomenal return, sort of a 18 month to 36 month payback because you're disintermediating logistics. Okay. What are the logistics and efficiencies that create a high price at the end market? That also therefore means you're probably disintermediating carbon. Because I'm growing it in the most inefficient places, the hardest to get to. All of the truck, rail, truck, truck you know, movements that you have are no longer needed because they're at the end point. And you can deal directly with the customer. So the most flexible production system at the very last mile, okay, is you're sort of is you're putting the Uber car with different sort of you know Uber dispatchers there for the customer to actually pull at the end point, as opposed to being at the airport, you know, with some sort of a centralized system. And so that's really how we think the food system will revolutionize. We're always going to have the outdoor ag 
to some degree you know, in terms of production. You'll have greenhouses, but niche products, you know, have very high cost locations. Those are the areas that you'll be able to produce less water, less input, less carbon, and so it and and better quality for the end customer. Because the thing that people don't appreciate is take something like spinach. When you cut spinach within 24 hours, you've lost 90% of the vitamin C. Okay. It's more than two weeks from usually when it's cut to when it gets on your whole food shelf. Okay. If you have that farm right in your neighborhood, the whole aspect of what we can do for nutritional deserts and food deserts, okay, and food equality is massive and it can be done with these smaller scale footprints at a very logical capital cost and, and flexibility. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. No, I mean, it, it's fascinating. I mean, because I think a lot about the future of farming and every time I'm out on my farm, I'm like, why are any humans even here whatsoever? And uh, you have the dystopian idiocracy outcome where you're watering the crops with, you know, Gatorade and, and electrolytes and we destroy our, our food system. But then the utopian side, which is like you figure out a much uh, better for the environment, a much more thoughtful, less wasteful way to go about this. And the obvious entry use case is some of the specialty high margin crops. Um, is this something you kind of see uh, a handful of companies coming to dominate? Is it? Are there even any category leaders at this point? Is there a way to invest in that theme? Or is it more of a trend that's hard to invest in? I know you mentioned freight farms. And intelligent growth systems, IGS, those companies are still private. One of the things that's really missing at the moment in the public market is, you know, I'd say mid-cap agricultural tech input-related companies. You have the behemoths, you have a few small caps, but nothing really in between. And so the aspect of helping to close that gap by taking some of these private companies public at the right time in their development, management, and market is going to be there to create it. There's also a gap, to be honest, in the agricultural venture capital space. Like there's a lot of people who can write a $500,000 or $5 million check. And there's a good number out there who can write sort of 100 million plus, but those 15, 20, 40, 50 million as the companies are evolving is a complete gap actually in the ag tech VC space. And so how to invest in it? I'd say at the moment, sort of put a pin in it in terms of that aspect. You have a, a number of small cap companies out there, a few, like I mentioned, uh, Bioceros and the like, or Plan Healthcare, which exist and are out there, but they're few and far between, and they're not that large or liquid yet. Most of these are going to private companies that are in their sort of early hyper growth and development stage and are building the scale and management needed to take them public. So uh, they'll get there and the, the people will have access to it and they should be looking for it. But you did mention one other thing and that I, I forgot to touch on that we are is we're in a world of collapsing low cost labor availability. China's facing it, Japan, South Korea, ourselves, whatever else. The other theme that within sustainable crop inputs, but especially controlled environment is how, and, and that people like deer are really focused on correctly is how do we eliminate labor costs? You just, just labor purely because of lack of availability. Like we let berries rot in the field now because we don't have people to pick them. Okay, is one of the number one themes you're going to see in agriculture is different aspects of automation because we have to. Like it's one of those things. Like it's not ESG driven, whatever else is. It's mandatory because of the fall of labor availability, and that's going to be massively fruitful that people should put on their radar. Any other uh, uh, companies that you guys have funded or invested in in the last handful of years on the private side? You think are doing particularly interesting, impactful work uh, that you think uh, have some bright prospects or just cool to talk about? 
Well, there's one I would love to touch on, despite the fact that people came from the safety school of University of Virginia. And so it's a company based in Charlottesville called Agrospheres. Okay. And it's, it's two uh, young gentlemen um, from whose you know, parents themselves came over from Iran and Pakistan. Okay. And they were doing lab work, you know, both for undergrad and for one on the master's level. Okay. For something called an agrocell. It's a, a lipid based coating. Okay. That you could, you know, custom create to put around individual biologic products, ag chemical products, or even something more at the molecular level as you get down to sort of RNAi. These are some of the most intelligent people we've ever met scientific and business-wise, like mature beyond their years. Like I'm not as mature and competent as these, these gentlemen in the company they're building are in terms of how thoughtful and organized they are. And so it is potentially transformational. There's been billion dollars spent and wasted for people trying to figure out how do you get RNAi to be used and be able to implement it and actually in a way in agriculture and their technology from agrospheres might actually be able to do it. And we're seeing it work over on the ag chem side as well. So not as transformational or not the total scale, but that is a company that despite its origin, okay, in terms of is uh, from Virginia, it is possibly the most exciting team and company and product and one of the most transformational that's out there. And so there, I, you know, I, I know I followed like appeal and some of these that do like coatings. Is this a coating based? Was this more of a actual genetic level? So appeal run by Jim Rogers, who's also a good Pittsburgh Steelers fan is great in terms of uh, trying to eliminate food waste and sort of you prolong the shelf life and be able to control that. This is for the input side into farming or into crops. Okay. So as opposed to the actual produce side, you know, so they focused upon um, avocados to start at appeal and then move into bananas. This actually goes into the plant. And how do you use dramatically uh, fewer chemicals and get them brought into a plant in a much more effective, efficient way? So that there's a, and so uh, Agrospheres is designed to help farming, whereas appeal is designed to sort of help minimize the waste that goes on in logistics distribution. How often, and I, I assume the answer is often, but do the sort of various parts of your business inform each other? Like, like how many folks do you guys have at this point, you know, across the, the various parts of this business? And, and how often is it sort of meshing where, uh, you know, the, the commodity side informs the, the VC side, informs everything going on? I'd love to be able to give you a quantitative answer in terms, of, I give you the answer in terms of people. So in terms of sort of direct or, or directly affiliated or controlled sort of research investment, sort of trading professionals. Okay? You know, we have over 30 people who are just focused on sort of the individual companies, positions, research analyses of the markets and companies therein. The answer in terms of, of how one plays to another uh, and, and how often is, is, I don't know whether I'd call it a mosaic or a skyscraper and where you're actually building incremental floor at a time. And so, all we do is meet with companies in our space, whether consumers, producers, service input providers. And so in any individual meeting, whether you learn something about a competitor, competitor company, about a commodity, it's something that is constantly building. It is a huge amount of time and effort investment. Maybe you have to constantly reinvest into your network and in terms of the people and in terms of that knowledge, in terms of what's going on. Um, and so is the luxury here that we sort of have is all we do is basic industries. Okay. So every company that we do is relevant to our space. It might or might not be relevant any individual meeting, 
to private equity or a commodity or a public equity or a private equity, but it helps increase your understanding of the possibility or the reality. Okay? And so it, it is a constant feedback loop that helps you sanity check you know, what we might be wrong or what things could be. And so since we don't do tech, telecom, healthcare, finance, retailing, all we do is different aspects of basic industry. You might go into an energy meeting and all of a sudden figure out something that's going to drive the aluminum market or, or zinc smelting or fertilizer and what that's going to do to the cost of production for corn. And so the answer is, is it's not as, as granular I could go, well, it's 60% this, 40% that. It's an aspect that everything reinforces each other. And there is an aspect that we learned over time and that one of the things that we thought would be hugely beneficial was actually owning physical assets and owning physical assets in scale and that we invested in ConAgra's grain elevator and trading network that became Gavilon that Greg Heckman and John Eppel and the team created a phenomenal company. So it became the second biggest mover store of grains and oil seeds in the US, second only to ADM, bigger than Cargill. And so I used to think that owning that network would be a phenomenal information advantage for us. The reality is it's good to have done, to learn, to actually, but while you actually own that, we were a massive competitor to Cargill, so Cargill would no longer talk to us. Okay, if we were just an investor in the space in commodities or futures, we were a material customer of Cargill, you had great dialogue. And so the advantage I picked up from owning and knowing the assets and being deeply integrated, I lost some of it because one of the biggest companies in space now viewed me as a competitor. So the aspect of being deeply involved in the space so that people know that you understand it, you develop a knowledge, but at where you're not definitively a consistent competitor actually is, is a great mix because having owned the assets, we understand what they are, no longer owning them, I'm not a direct competitor, okay? And so it's an interesting aspect of whether something is a plus or a minus. Uh, and uh, people market, oh, we own the physical assets, so we have better information. You know, like I said, it's a plus minus. So as we look out at the horizon, uh, summer 2022, like what have we not talked about um, that's on your brain? This could be, hey, look, I've always wanted to fund this ag tech idea. It just, we haven't found the right team or, um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, something that, you know, others are not thinking about or I'm worried or, hey, it's just summer sabbatical and that's that. (laughs) What's on on, uh, Dwight's brain this summer? Let me give you a few different things. One of the things out there is generally almost every basic industry equity, whether it's economically sensitive or not, is priced for depression. You look at something like Mosaic that's trading, you know, three and a half you know, times PE earnings with effectively no net debt um, and the structural changes in the fertilizer industry and the margins. And you go, why is that? You take a look at something like cocoa or as we spoke, corn and how they've sold off across the board is a number of securities, commodity and equities are priced where you have to have a recession for where they're priced. There's no other justification for their price on there. There's none of it you're seeing in demand in the balance sheets today. And so if we don't move into depression quickly or recession quickly, then you're going to see a large number of the publicly traded basic industry equities and a number of the commodities move 20, 50% from here. Because everyone you know out there, the consensus is people are worried about a recession. They expect a recession. It's baked in. If you don't have one, and if you don't have recession demand for each one, anything where that doesn't occur is going to be a material mover. And so that's a little bit out of consensus when everyone I know is expecting a recession. Okay, so that's one thought. And you think, and you think, but you think in particular, um, the big beneficiaries are 
the cheap stuff or or uh, the natural resources, metals and mining, uh, all the above, ag? So I don't um, do tech, telecom, healthcare. You know, so I don't know if they're cheap or not. Okay. Um, I also understand the risk and concern about a recession. Okay. And so I go, okay, it, it's hard in metals and mining. Okay. To say, okay, is, is that something that you're comfortable with the next 12 months of earnings? Because there is real risk to that recession we spoke about. I think that uh, if you have real long duration capital where you care about value today and what will be worth over three years, there are some real opportunities in metals and mining. Like we take a look at the structural deficit that'll occur in copper. If you just have a mediocre world for the next three years and the companies in that space are incredibly cheap. But will copper be $1,500 a ton cheaper first? That I'm less confident on, especially you know, you know, going out to public and recommending it. Is I take a look at companies like random companies. There's a company called Graftech. Okay? It does uh, uh, a graphite and carbon anodes that go into mini mills. And so where we're going to grow steel capacity in the world to replace blast furnaces because there's better, better carbon footprint, Loros, are mini mills. You need their anodes for that. They make a synthetic graphite that we're going to need for electrical uh, vehicles, for the batteries outside of China. They make that material. And you're talking about a company that's trading like under five times earnings, okay, with by this year, no net debt. It's just way too cheap, a $2 billion market cap company with, with good float. Um, and so that's something that almost regardless of how we go is too cheap. We talked about Mosaic or any of the inputs. You know, those companies are just structurally, you know, sort of, you know, too cheap. Like, um, when I look at something where the public, you know, traded EMPs, you know, is at one and a half to, to three times EV to EBITDA, you know, or even depending upon your carbon conscience, the coal companies, you know, you're looking at, you know, 20 to 80% free cash flow yields in these spaces. Some of those will fall, but I only know our space and a number of our names in our space are just too cheap, regardless of the economic cycle. Well, you're speaking to a quant, so half the time I don't even know what's in our portfolios. But if you look at our traditional value cash flow based strategies, um, not just in the US, but in foreign and EM, uh, energy and materials across the board is like 30 to 40% of the portfolio. Um, it's, it's showing a lot of opportunity there. We'll see how it plays out. But uh, I think I feel like the value crowd. I'm friends with uh, has been singing that tune for a while. And uh, so hopefully uh, we'll have our day in the sun at some point. It, it's been doing better, but a lot of the foreign and emerging has just been getting absolutely pummeled. Uh, part of that's probably a dollar story too. Maybe you look at FinTech and crypto. There's a publicly traded company called CoinShares out there. Okay, As of their last quarter, they had effectively 50 Swedish kroner per share net cash and are generating free cash. Okay. The company's trading um, 36 kroner. It's 14 kroner below net cash and a company that's generating with good crypto beta, you know, to the upside, you know. And so there's these entities out there. If you're willing to go to small cap, aspect where is, is the valuations are ludicrous. And and so is is whether it's it's something like coin shares in the crypto world, okay, where you got around use round numbers 50% to get to cash, okay. <laughs> Or the things we talked about in fertilizer NP, you know, there's phenomenal value out there in these spaces, even the ones that we touch and know. There was a good bio, biotech bud uh, PM I was um, hanging out with uh, recently, and he had sent me over a chart um, 
and so even in the biotech space, which has gotten pummeled, um, you know, the amount of companies trading at or below cash is uh, a record, uh, or it's right at a record going back to a couple other periods in the last 20 years. And, and bi biotech usually does this every four years. It kind of has a big run and goes through a dark times and, you know, resettles, but it's, it's up there with, uh, with some cheap stuff. I imagine we could do an entire podcast or entire series. Maybe you need your own podcast just to do these series, but um, essentially Dwight telling stories about uh, due diligence and company and farming trips all around the world for the past 20 plus years where um, I don't know how many stamps you have on your passport, but I'm guessing it's a lot in these far flung locales. And, and hopefully you get to do more of it on Zoom at this point. I'm not sure, but. Meb, what I would love to do at some point is, is for us to get together in person over dinner. Because yeah. there's a lot of stories that I would love to share with you that I will not put into a podcast. I, I promise I won't record it. Well, you had a great profile in our, our local buddy, Steve Drobny's book. Uh, listeners will add a, a link to that. But um, as you look back, this is going to be hard because it's been probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of investments at this point. What's been the most memorable? Is there one that sticks out? Uh, uh, good, bad in between? Yeah. The first private investment that I was ever party to and helped lead um, was an investment to a company called Clark Refining and Marketing. It's when I was at Tiger. And Chevron was selling a complex refinery, and I developed a thesis that there was going to be a material expansion of complex refining margins. And so um, we there's a gentleman named Peter Monk, who was in material in real estate, but created uh, American Barrick, now Barrick Gold. And we knew, and, and he had gotten involved in uh, refining and marketing via a company called Clark Refining and Marketing. And so we agreed to put the capital into Clark Refining and Marketing to buy that Port Arthur complex refinery. So we put you know, roughly $130 million in. Clark Refining and Marketing was a, a refining company, also with gas stations. It had old, small, higher cost refineries inland in the middle of nowhere with Port Logistics. Their gas stations were in bad demographic areas and they weren't on the corner of the street. They were in the middle of some random street. And we had an inexperienced management team and we had a bunch of high yield debt, which at the time was truly high yield and expensive. And uh, you then subsequently also had, you know, the Asian crisis. And then eventually complex refining margins exploded and Port Arthur became one of the most profitable assets in the world. Unfortunately, Clark Refining Market went bankrupt before that. Okay? We were able to get out a little bit earlier uh, where we sold our investment for about 98 million and change. So we lost a little over $30 million. Um, and I still, it's one of the few corporate mementos that I keep. And I keep it from my checklist as a starting point of what not to do for the investments we make going forward. So to, to this day, it's probably one of my most memorable. Dwight, this has been uh, really super fun. Would love to do it again sometime. Um, if if we have some of those mid-sized checks, right? The 15 million ones, not the 100 million you guys, uh, uh, not the hundred thousand, but the ones that you say aren't in the ag space. Uh, where do people go? They find want to find more information on you guys. What you're up to? What's the best place? Um, best place is reaching out to us via the Osprey Ag Science website. And so there's a there's a you know investor communication or you know how to reach us there. Thanks so much for joining us today. And Meb, I really appreciate it. Look forward to catching up again. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.